Matthew chapter 9 this morning, we're going to be in verses, uh, well, I won't say 18 through 34, basically, but verse 18 begins in Matthew chapter 9 says, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler, ruler came and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay her hands on her and she will live. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask, Lord, that your your word would uh, would penetrate our hearts, God, and we'd have ears to hear what your spirit would say to us. We pray that um, we'd not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so, God, increase our faith this morning. We know your word says that faith comes by hearing and that of the word of God. We just pray that you would clear up any misunderstandings we have of you and also expand our understanding of you. And just that our worship might be deepened and widened uh, as we build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we come to you and we love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to see in verses 18 through 26 is a series of divine interruptions. How many of you guys get interrupted all the time? Uh, yeah. How many of you are annoyed by your interruptions? Anybody else? Yes. A few of you are like, yeah, me too. Um, well, Jesus is constantly going to be interrupted. And, and I think Matthew is just looking at this as he's following along Jesus. And he just sees these interruptions happening one after another. And he just sees God's hand in it all. And, and I think it's an opportunity for us to look at the interruptions in our day as opportunities for God to use. It's, that's a side point. But the interruptions are there. In this first interruption, Jesus had just finished speaking to the disciples of John. Remember last week, the disciples of John came to Jesus on behalf of the Pharisees said, why aren't your disciples, you know, fasting just like we are, just like the Pharisees are? What's going on there? And Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm the bridegroom. They're the bride. It's a party. You don't need to act all sad and sorrowful when the Lord's with you. And that's kind of his, his interpretation. That's very loose. But he just says, I'm with my disciples. There's no need to fast. There's coming a time when they will need to fast. But then he goes on to answer the deeper question between the old traditions of the rabbis and the new fulfillment of the law. And he talks about old wine skins and new wine skins and how they're incompatible, but both had their place. If you're looking at it anyways, I don't want to get into that again, but Basically, what happens is, is that right after he's talking to them about all this stuff, he's just finishing his sentence. Someone jumps up before him and bows down before him. It's this guy named Jairus. And he says, listen, my, fa- my, my daughter is dying. Will you please come here? My daughter is dying. Now, Matthew's account here, when he starts speaking, is, is either, it's either condensing the story recorded in Mark and Luke. So Mark and Luke are very similar in their recordings. It's either condensing it or it's just taking the main point or he's picking up like wh- later on in the story. Because in both Mark and Luke, it says that when Jairus, this ruler, this man who comes and bows down before Jesus, he comes to Jesus first. Jairus says to Jesus that his daughter is at the point of death. Matthew says he's, he's dead. And so either Matthew's kind of, he's either condensing the story or he's picking up at the point where she, where she dies. Cause she does die as Jesus now goes back to the house uh, on his way back to the house. And it, people come and say, Hey, listen, don't bother the master. She's dead. And so that might be where Matthew's picking up. I just want to bring that up because uh, there is a difference there. So most likely Matthew's uh, either picking up, the points here uh, at the point of her death, or he's condensing everything down. Because if you actually look at Matthew's account, he's leaving out tons. 
He, and he adds things that Luke doesn't have, details, but he's also leaving out tons. He's not adding a bunch of details in there because his point is about the miracles and what Jesus did, the miracles and what Jesus did, the miracles and what Jesus did. And so he's leaving out a lot, a lot of the details. But I'm going to pull in some of those details as we go along here. Regardless, it's in harmony with the other accounts. By the way, Mark and Luke lets us know that this guy named Jairus, who comes down before Jesus and bows down before him, he was the chief ruler in the local synagogue in Capernaum, which was Jesus' headquarters there. This is also where Peter's, Peter lived. Uh, this means that this guy, Jairus, he's probably a Pharisee or a scribe or some kind of, uh, you know, trained in religious traditions there. And nevertheless, we see him coming before Jesus in faith and bowing down before him and uh, at, at his in, in trusting in Jesus to heal his daughter. And Matthew tells us that he came knelt before him, humbly believing and asking him to intervene. And so that's hopeful. Uh, verse 19 says, and Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. I love this. This is the heart of the Lord. So he's interrupted. This guy comes says, Hey, my daughter's dying and Jesus stops what he's doing. And he goes and follows this man. I love that about the Lord. Beautiful. In verse 20, let's pick up there. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I can only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now it's interesting that we have a 12 year old little girl who's dying. And now we have a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. And then we're going to see the sending out of to the 12. I've always tried to figure out what in the world's going on there. But I think Matthew's just pulling out this, these 12s, which happen to be in the story here. He's not making this stuff up. You got a 12 year old little girl and you also have a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. I think he's bringing that up. So we get a, a sense of time here of what's going on. 12 years is a long time to be suffering. How many of you can remember what you're doing for 12 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> just think for a second. It's like, Oh yeah. Think of all the life and all the days and all the months and the years and the events that have gone on in 12 years. That's a, that's a long time to be suffering. We came to Walla Walla 12 years ago. So to me, it's like, it's like a moment, but it's also like forever. It's been a little over 12 years, but, and I think, I think the Holy spirit gives us this time reference of 12 years, both in the little girl and, and in the woman, it gives us some context, 12 years of having a daughter. How many of you have had kids and, and what were they like 12 years ago? You know, uh, especially little ones, you know? And so this ruler had watched his daughter grow up for 12 years. And, and by the way, 12 years old, when you're a Jewish girl is you've become a woman, right? So 13 for boys, 12 for girls. And, and, um, now this young woman is there before him and, uh, his beloved daughter was dying and is going to be dead as he walks back home with Jesus. And so, um, and yet all the while this, this guy knew his daughter and lived with her and enjoyed her and, and they grew up together and got to watch her grow that whole time. This little girl was growing up to be a woman that this other woman was suffering 12 years suffering all that time with an issue of blood. We all know what that means, but again, 12 years is a long time to be suffering, let alone from something so personal in that way. You know, keep in mind, not only there was physical suffering by this woman from hemorrhaging in that way, um, 
But there was tremendous emotional suffering as well. Um, you can imagine that, but also culturally, because according to Levit Leviticus 15, the law of Moses, she was deemed unclean as women who are on the cycle are basically unclean for that week. And there were things that had to be happened. So she was constantly bleeding for 12 years and therefore she was perpetually unclean. So any, her clothing, anything she sat on, anyone she touched, anybody she was around was technically unclean in that culture. And so for 12 years, she was unclean, unable to participate in the normal uh, life of a Jewish woman, unable to worship, unable to interact and do all the things that normal uh, Jewish women did in a society. That just must have been so difficult and horrific on her. Actually, again, Mark and Luke, they give us more detailed account uh, about what was going on there. It says that she spent all her living on physicians all her living on physicians. And Mark tells us actually that it, that, um, that it all made, it made her worse. How many of you've had that story as all, as much as we try to go to the doctors and get better and stuff, sometimes things just get worse and worse and worse, whether it was at the hands of the doctors getting worse or whether it was her, just her condition deteriorating. This woman was suffering in a massive way. And Mark tells us that this woman basically was out of options and that she hears about Jesus and she has, yet she had faith in him, which is amazing. I love Mark's account of this. Check out Mark 5, 27 through 20 through 34. Listening for the rustling and the clicking Mark 5, 27 through 34. This is Mark's account of this whole deal. Matthew, Mark 5, 27 through 34. It said that she had heard reports in verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. That word garment, you know, rabbis wore these shawls with little tassels on them. Um, and that was traditional. Most likely she's reaching up and just grabbing. She says, if I can just touch one of those little tassels, I'll be healed. And it says there in verse 28 says, for she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately verse nine, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. She was suffering from a disease, whatever that was. And Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. And immediately he turned about to the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you. And yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And this is what Matthew says in verse 22, Matthew's condensed version. He says, Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And so Matthew's point is that Jesus had an authority to do what no one else could do to make this woman well. And, and, and she came to Jesus in faith, although she was suffering, although there were tons of limitations, although she had been to all the doctors and all this type of stuff, although she was unclean, although she, she was separated, all she had all this weight on her, yet she came to Jesus and she sought him. And she reached out and she grabbed the hem of his garment. I love how Jesus says in Mark's account when she did that, uh, who touched me? Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? 
got to realize there's crowds everywhere, right? And that's what the disciples said. The disciples are always like, they're stumped with Jesus, right? <laughs> Jesus, there's people pressing up against Jesus. He's walking and, 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 and she reaches up and touches him and she's healed instantly. And, and all of a sudden he goes, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what are you talking about? Everybody's touching you. Like, how are we supposed to know this stuff? Like Jesus always had them, but I love the Lord. He's always in the spirit. He's always knowing what's going on. And it's interesting. The disciples didn't know. No one knew, but Jesus knew who touched him. Jesus knew who reached out in faith in the midst of the crowds, in the midst of the noisiness and the busyness and all the needs. Jesus knew. He knows who touches him in faith. Perhaps that's you this morning. Obviously that's an application. Yeah. You have some very personal, heavy things that are going on and you feel like you're lost in the crowd and the Lord's not listening. Yes, he is. And the desert of this life and its resources perhaps have left you barren. No answers. I would encourage you to reach out to the Lord in faith. Amen. The Lord is very aware of those who have faith in him, no matter how it might seem. He knows your sufferings. He knows your heart and he knows your faith. Now it might not be his will to heal you. It might be very much his will that you continue, that he refines your character through your suffering. That's quite often how it goes, but that's up to him, his plan and his purposes for your life. But I want to encourage you to reach out to the Lord in faith. Uh, He responds to faith. And we see that over and over in these examples. He responds to faith, faith in him, who he is. And this isn't a name it, claim it. That's not what we're preaching. But Jesus responds to faith, to trusting in who he is and, and how he is and his ability. Now, as Jesus was telling this woman that she was healed and to go in peace, Mark and Luke tell us that he was interrupted again. So another interruption And Luke's account in chapter eight, flip over to Luke eight, Matthew, Mark, Luke eight, verse 49 and 50. I'm kind of doing a pulling all the gospels together here, but Luke's account, chapter eight, verse 49 and 50 says that while, well, I guess I did 38, 35. So look at 35. Luke 8, 35 says, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house. Some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But Jesus on hearing this answered him, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. And so Jairus, he came in faith, believing if Jesus would just lay his hand on her, she'd be healed. And then he's making his way back. This woman happens to be healed in this situation. Then while this delay is happening, what happens? He gets these people who come back and say, listen, your daughter is dead. Don't bug Jesus anymore. Don't bug Jesus anymore. Yet when, when he hears those, that, that news, you can imagine this guy's heart is just absolutely sunk. Immediately, Jesus looks to him and he grabs onto that little smoldering bit of faith that he has. And he says, do not fear, only believe and she will be well. I love the Lord. You know, uh, Matthew's going to quote Isaiah 43 later on in chapter 12, verse 20. Uh, and he's, which is a bruised reed. He will not break and a smoldering wick. He will not quench. 
And this man was a bruised reed and he was a smoldering wick. He was barely hanging on. He was barely burning at this point. And as this man faced the worst possible news that he could possibly think of, that his little daughter, whom he loved, had died. And then he, on top of that, he hears the advice of his friends, just like Job's friends, you know, <laughs> don't bother Jesus anymore. It's a done deal. This is what he's facing, death and doubt and fear, obviously, which was in his heart. Jesus intervenes. Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. Brothers and sisters, you are never bothering Jesus. Just want you to make that clear. You're not bothering Jesus. He didn't, you know, give himself and slaughter himself on the cross so to keep you at arm's length. What does it say we're to do to boldly come before the throne of grace? Any of you have read Hebrews, this is towards the end, right? <laughs> After all that Jesus is and he has done, now boldly come before the throne of grace. That you may receive help in time of need, right? We get to boldly run into the presence of our father. He's not keeping you at arm's length. Jesus takes this man's smoldering wick and nurses it into a tiny flame. He says, just believe. And Matthew picks up in verse 23 here, back in Matthew, verse, uh, Matthew 9, 23. It says, in G when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away for this girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. <clears throat> Middle, Middle Eastern funerals were loud. How many of you have seen them on TV? You know, there's like crowds of people. They're very expressive. And, you know, it was a time for really letting out your sorrows and crying and so forth. You know, doesn't that kind of make sense? We kind of do things weird, you know, we're, we're very reserved. We try to push it all in and, and then we try to compact it and don't know, you know, like we no feelings or whatever it might be. And it's like someone just died and it makes more sense to let it out and just grieve. Actually, they provided for a time of grieving in the old Testament for people. And so grief is a, is a very important thing to work through. But what happened here is you had professional mourners. And so because it was a culture where there were people who were actually mourning, they were hired mourners to come and help work up the people. So you had flute players and you, you know, Oh no, whatever they were doing. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was weird. And you had people would cry out and do all this kind of weird stuff. But these paid mourners came, they were drumming up all this commotion. And so when Jesus tells them they're not needed to go away because the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And this is what we see in the other accounts. They laugh at him. Listen, they know the girl is dead. The girl was dead. Just want you to know that she was not sleeping, even though we'll get into this in a second. They all knew it. And this is why they were laughing at Jesus because he said she's sleeping. Now, the girl was not asleep. She was actually dead. And to us, she would be dead. She's absolutely dead. Dead as a doornail. And there is no coming back from death. No pulling out of that state. And this is why they're laughing. This is the point. But from Jesus's perspective, she was asleep. And that's the perspective we need to understand when he's saying she's asleep. Because raising her from death is like waking from someone from sleep for Jesus, not for us, for him. 
And that's Matthew's point here is that he has authority over death. That's what Jesus is driving. Uh, uh, that's what Matthew is driving him at, at. Another example of Jesus using this terminology uh, of, of sleep, calling death sleep is in, is like the story of Lazarus in, in John chapter 11 concerning Lazarus. You could just write that down. It says in John chapter 11, 11 through 15, it says, after saying these things, he said to them that his disciples, our friend Lazarus is, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And so there's that term again, asleep. Now, was Lazarus asleep? No, he was very dead, four days dead, right? Uh, by the time they get there, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he had fallen asleep, we, he will recover. See, they're thinking he's talking in our terms. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So he waits around and then he finally goes to him. Jesus calls death sleep there because for him to raise the dead is like waking someone from sleep. And this idea of death being called sleep is repeated by the apostles, especially by Paul, Paul in first Corinthians 15, 51, 52, Paul in first Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. What's he saying? We shall not all sleep. What's he saying? We shall not all die, but he's saying at the last trumpet there, when the Lord Christ will be, no, will be transformed in a moment. Some of us will not taste death. Some of us will be transformed. We who are alive and remain when the Lord comes and shouts again, first lesson, Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, first Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. Paul uses this term sleep to refer to believers who have died, but we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we have believed that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him all who have fallen asleep. For this, we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven in the cry of the command with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of the sound of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's what he's talking about. Those who fall asleep. Who are they? The dead in Christ. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore encourage one another with these words. Now, the reason that I'm sharing these things with you is because you need to know that he's not talking about people, what people are doing when they die. They are not sleeping. That is not what he's talking about. Soul sleep is not what this is talking about. This, the, the SDA church teaches soul sleep. And this comes out of a necessity. Be, well, if I get into this, that's important. So basically what happened is there was something called the great disappointment or a great disillusionment, whatever you want to call uh, prophets were saying, Hey, Jesus is going to come back in 18 something. And he didn't come back. Everybody's like, Oh, bummer. Well, actually we got the numbers wrong. It's actually this date. Oh, well, he didn't come back. And so 
And by the way, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the SDA kind of have similar roots there coming out of that, the Campbellites and all that type of stuff. I won't get into that this morning. But what we have is we have people who are expecting Jesus to come back based on the Daniel prophecies that that would be in the 1800s. It didn't happen. It happened again. It didn't happen. And so they changed it to meaning, oh, wait, it wasn't that Jesus didn't come back. It's that he went from the outside of the temple and heaven to the inside of the temple of heaven and started to do something called investigative judgment. Investigative judgment is what you do is what Jesus is doing now, apparently examining everyone to see if they're worthy of the resurrection. So you're asleep. And so if you are deemed worthy at the end of that time, then you will be raised from the dead. If not, you get annihilated. They don't believe in hell. So that's the doctrine of investigative judgment. And therefore soul sleep is necessary, all based upon bad prophecy. Make sense. Jesus is not talking about you going to sleep. He's saying, man, it's like his power over your death is like waking you from sleep. That's the point. Amen. He's not saying what you're doing to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord on the cross. He said to the thief, you today, you will be with me in paradise. Oh, wait, after your nap. No, today you will be with me in paradise. Does this make sense? Yes. With the moment you die, you are before the Lord is appointed man wants to die in the judgment. Okay. So this is all about the authority of Jesus. And this is why the New Testament writers are saying when it talks about our death, it's like sleep. It's like sleep. It's like sleep. It's like sleep. We will not all sleep. Oh, death. Where is your sting? There is no sting. Jesus has power over our death. Amen. Rest in it. It's like him waking you up from a nap. It'll be moment twinkle of an eye change kind of a thing. So that's important. That's what Jesus is saying here when he says that this girl is not dead. She's sleeping. She's dead, but he's waking her. Make sense? He says that he's going to wake her from death. And the people laughed just as they laughed at the fact that we believe in the resurrection. <laughs> oh, no, there is no. That's not going to happen. You guys believe in the cookie monster and all the other things that these people say. No, Jesus Christ is going to raise us from the dead. Our spirit's going to go immediately with the Lord. But when that day happens, he's going to shout and our bodies are going to be re put together. Well, how's that going to happen? I don't know, but the one who put everything together can obviously do whatever he wants. Whether you're cremated, by the way, or whether you're buried. Don't worry about all that. He has power of it all. They laughed. And so Jesus removes them. Everyone except for Peter, James, and John, Luke tells us. And if you want to have extra credit, I know you do. Points. This is the points-based work system here. If you, <laughs> if you want to be blessed, go read Acts 9, 36 through 43. Acts 9, 36 through 43. That's later on. Okay, go read that for fun. Because what happens is Jesus is gone, but his disciples are anyways. And so verse 25, but when the crowd back in Matthew, but when the crowd had been put outside, all the doubters had been removed. He went in and took her by the hand and the girl rose. And the report of this went all throughout the district. 
Jesus raised this dead little girl to life. Pretty awesome, huh? You see, not only does Jesus have authority over disease and sickness and nature and demons and sin and suffering and issues of blood or whatever it might be. This is Matthew's line of thinking here. Jesus has authority over death. Authority over death. He has authority over your death. And one day Jesus will shout and the dead will be raised. Hallelujah. (laughs) The dead in Christ will rise. This is those who are with the Lord and they will have new resurrected bodies. And those who are alive and remain will be changed and transformed in a moment in the twinkle of an eye. Amen. And so encourage one another with these things. Thessalonians says, right? That day is coming. So when you fall asleep in death, you have no need to fear. Death wears your sting for that day. You will be with the Lord immediately in paradise in the at the proper time. The resurrection from the dead will happen and you will meet together in the air and be with the Lord. It'll be awesome. Both. And by the way, the Lord has power. He's going to raise the dead, both to everlasting life and to everlasting judgment. Jesus has authority over these. Read the end of, what was it? Revelation 20, 21. Those just meditate on those. By the way, 22, because it's awesome. But this is the gospel church. This is the gospel that all who believe in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. This is why it's important to, you know, it's not just, hey, you know, we all believe in Jesus. It's actually who he is. It's really important. It's super important that Jesus is God in the flesh. He has power to forgive sin and he has power over death. He has power to forgive your sin and he has power to raise you from the dead. And not only to raise you from the dead, to give life. He gives you his life. He has authority to give you eternal life. And he has through faith in him, by grace, you have been saved. And you, Ephesians 2, I mean, come on, preach it now. Just go for it. The whole Bible. <laughs> and Jesus said to Martha, the sister of Lazarus in John, Lazarus, uh, in John 11, 25, before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember, she's weeping. He's dead. It's very difficult. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's talking with her dead brother in the grave. She said, oh man, if you'd only been here, I know you would have saved him. Just like this guy, Jairus, man, if you, if you just lay hands on her while she's alive, she'll be alive. And Jesus is like, listen, you don't understand who I am. I've got all of this. Nothing is too hard for me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? This is important. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is life? He is the resurrection. He is alive. This is what he came to do, church. This is the gospel. Do you believe he is that? This is why he's saying, it doesn't matter if you're living and believing in me, or if you die believing in me, you have life. Why? Because of me. 
It's important. Do you believe that Jesus has authority over death, authority to give life? Notice Mary's response. She said to him, yes, uh, Martha's response. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Wait, she got it wrong. He asked, do you believe that I am the resurrection? And she says, I believe that you are the what? The Christ. I believe you've got all of it. I believe you are exactly what the scriptures say you are. I believe in who you are over death, over sin, over disease, over the enemy, over it all. That's what it is to believe upon Jesus. Not only did he die for your sins and his authority to forgive you and all that stuff, but in all that he is. And God wants to spend our days expanding our, our understanding of who he is, just like he's doing with his disciples, just like he's doing in the word here. And we just get to marvel at the depth and the power of the relationship we've been brought into by simple faith in Jesus Christ, man, we've been adopted. And this is why Peter freaks out. And Paul freaks out at the beginning of their message. They said, man, you are blessed in the heavenlies. You are seated with Christ Jesus. And he just starts laying out all the blessings of what God has done for you, who he's done, how he's chosen you, how he's called you, how he's redeemed you and forgiven you and washed you and brought you into the kingdom. And of his, why? Because of his great love, just who he is, his plan. And you just see this benevolence. And then after all of this, of telling him all that God has done and telling you who you are in him, then he said, now go live lives worthy of that. And this is true religion. It's a response to the grace of God. It's a response to who he is. This is why the disciples died. Because they knew him, they handled him, they touched him, they believed in him and their lives were changed and they lived it afterwards. Amen. That's what a Christian is. And so the one who has authority over it all, and this is what Matthew's driving us here to remember the total authority of Jesus Christ, even over death and to give us eternal life. Amen. 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 Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And so here two blind men are following him miraculously, right? They're listening to his voice and going along. Obviously this must've been something to see as they followed the sound of Jesus, wherever he was going, following the crowds. Imagine that. And they cried out in their desperation, crying out into the darkness, hoping that Jesus might hear him. Have mercy on a son of David. Now the term son of David, that's a flat out Messiah term. That's a flat out Messiah term. Second Samuel seven, 12 through 13, second Samuel 12 through 13. Just to let you know, promise this is a promise to the King, King David it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is talking about Solomon immediately. Cause it then it goes on to talk about, his wayward heart, and he would bring them back and all this type of stuff. But his kingdom, the one who would come through him, the son of David, the son of Solomon would be the one, the Messiah would come from this way. He's the son of Jesse. He's the son of David. He would come from the line of David. This is why you have in the beginning of Matthew, when it goes to the genealogy, it's amazing that these blind men, even though they didn't have sight, they believed what people who had sight did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Pretty amazing. They're crying out for the Messiah to have mercy upon him. And they knew all the prophecies about the Messiah, what he was doing, healing, giving sight to the blind, lame are leaping, all these things. Verse 28, it says, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? 
And they said to him, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, let it be done to you again. According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. Shortly, we will be in Matthew 11, where John the Baptist has been in prison and he sends messengers to Jesus. I think in his moment of difficulty, this is John the Baptist who got the message from heaven. Everything, you know, the, the, the bird fell down on Jesus. <laughs> Sorry. Holy spirit in the form of a dove fell down. You know, he got all the divine revelation and John's having a crisis of faith. So it seems in, 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 in verse four of Matthew 11, Jesus, he gets a response. Uh, Jesus gets the messengers to say, Hey, are you the one or shall we look for another? John's wondering. And Jesus responds to him and says, go and tell John what you hear and see the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. That's what's going on. He's quoting Isaiah there, right? He's Isaiah 35, five saying, check out what's going on. John, did you read your Bible? Remember what it said the Messiah would be doing? What's happening? So Jesus has the authority to give the blind sight according to the scriptures, what the Messiah would do. The blind men believed that Jesus had the authority to do exactly what the Messiah would do. And he did it and he heals them. And then he says in verse 30, this is interesting. And he certainly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Hmm. And they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. <laughs> disobedient. That's a strong warning. This is a very strong warning. It's, it's sterner in the Greek, but it says, don't let anybody know. And it's possibly because they were dialed in on that. He was the Messiah and it wasn't this time to be revealed yet. That's my guess. It seems that was going on. It wasn't the Lord's will that they do this, but they disobeyed and did it anyways. It's interesting because to them, he says, don't don't go proclaim this. And they did it anyways. And then to the demoniac, he healed, he got healed and he wanted to go with them and Jesus wouldn't let him, but he sent them back in the city to proclaim all the Lord had done for him. So I don't get the Lord always. It's important. You just obey him. Amen. Amen. And so the Lord wanted him to be quiet. And I find this, that pattern interesting. Like when Paul wanted to go to certain places, God has his reasons. Okay. Paul, Paul wanted to go to certain places like in Acts 16, six through 10. It says, uh, and it said, you see the Holy spirit forbidding them to speak in a certain region. They wanted to go in a certain place, but it says the Holy spirit forbid them. And what's going on? The Holy spirit forbid them from preaching the gospel. Yep. And then they wanted to go another way. And it says, oh, but the spirit of Christ would not allow them to go there. So you've got the Holy spirit and the spirit of Christ, one and the same directing them by divine nose. No. So quite often we want to do good things, but God says, no, it's important to be in tune with them. He has his reasons because he went straight on. They went to the Macedonian call they would loop back there later in another missionary journey, but God had a purpose. So listen to God and his timings for yes and no's, even though it might seem like a good thing. Amen. But they disobeyed, not good. And as they were going away, verse 32, behold, a demon oppressed man who is mute was brought to him again, all these divine interruptions. And when the demon had been cast out and mute, the man spoke and the crowds marveled saying, never was anything like this in Israel uh, seen in Israel. But the Pharisees had said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's what's going on here. So we see the power of Jesus over demons again. And the demon was causing this man to be mute. 
Now, again, we see demonic possession manifest itself in, in various ways. In this case, the guy couldn't speak and he was throwing himself uh, maybe into the fire. Maybe that was Luke's account. I can't remember. But Jesus casts out the demon from this man and he is free and he's in his right mind and he begins to speak. Pretty amazing. So, again, Matthew's tracking with prophecy. The blind are seeing, the deaf are speaking. Does that make sense? That's his prof. That's so Matthew's got a method here. And he's talking about the authority of Jesus. And, and, and then on top of this, you have this demonic opposition as the enemy is being pushed back and Jesus is coming in and clearing house. You've got the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who are telling all the people who are marveling at Jesus. They're starting to put two and together, two and two together of who Jesus is. They're starting to see his authority. What do they say? He's doing it by the power of demons. Boy, this is bl- the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark three speaks about this in verses 22 to 30. Flip over to Mark three. The Pharisees are attributing Jesus' authority to being demonically empowered. Listen, this is what the Antichrist is going to do. This is what the Antichrist is going to do. He is going to be empowered by Satan. Along with the false prophet there, you got the unholy trinity, so to speak. But Mark 3, 22 through 30, in closing, it says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, Lord of flies, right? The Lord of dung. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? He's just going logic on them, Right. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He's like, your logic is flawed. Think about what you're saying. And he's saying it in parables, but the people are listening. So if that's what the Pharisees were saying of Jesus' authority, that it was come from Satan. And Jesus tells them that that doesn't make sense. Satan's going to, why would Satan be destroying his own work? Why would he be doing that? But Jesus goes on in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Whose house? In this scenario, in this parable, what's the house? It's the world. Who's in the house? All of us. We're the goods. We're the people. Who's, who's governing that house? Strong man. Right? Or, yeah, the strong man. Who's ruling and reigning, protecting areas. How many of you are like, man, if anybody comes into my house, not supposed to be there, they're going to go say hello to Jesus. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. Someone will have to overtake you and bind you in order to do something. Right. Jesus is saying, I've just kicked open the door. I've just bound up the strong man. I'm taking his goods. (laughs) That's what's going on. Jesus has overtaken the strong man. Amen. Amen.
And what he began on the cross, he will finish at his second coming when he begins to pour out his divine judgment and binds him, throws him away and all those things. And Jesus says there in verse 28, regarding what they're accusing him of, that the spirit in which he's doing this is of satanic. See, that's all they've got. Oh, that he's, they couldn't deny that it was a supernatural thing. And so they ascribed what Jesus was doing to the power of Satan. It's horrible. Jesus says in verse 28, he says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. The children of man. Can you just underline that one and relax in that? Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Underline that too. How many of you have sinned greatly or mildly or barely? A lot of barely's out there. <laughs> Lord's going to work in you. How many of you have blasphemed against God at one time or another? Andrew was sharing, you know, just his heart, you know, one time in his life, we've all shook our hands at God or said something and boy, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. This is the power of the cross, the power of the blood of Jesus, his willing heart to forgive. I will forgive you of all that stuff. Even your blasphemies that you utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy spirit will never has forgiveness. There's a line that God has. And this is what he's saying here of these men. And he says there, you never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That is scary. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's what he's talking about. I know we tried to make it in different things, but they were ascribing what is unholy as the powering mechanism to the holiest one of all. Jesus is saying to these guys, you've committed something you can't walk back from. Somehow their hearts got hard. Somehow they were at the place where, you know, it's interesting. We see this story in, um, if you're wondering if you've committed this and you probably have not committed it, right? <laughs> so here's the thing is that, uh, you know, like the story of Pharaoh and, Moses, and, and uh, Pharaoh's heart, it says like over and over again that, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. So God came to him and it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And, and, and then God came to him and Pharaoh hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his heart. He kept hardening his heart towards the things of God. And then finally it says, and God hardened his heart. He just rejected him. And so there's a sense in here, which these men's hearts were so hardened towards God that God gave them over to what they were doing. They were fully empowered by the enemy. And obviously we know that the enemy's working on the scenes and they were starting to be, they were his ministers and they were saying, listen, what's happening here is actually being done by the power of Satan. And the Lord just simply says, you're not coming back from that. So serious stuff. And this is what the Pharisees were telling the people that Jesus was being empowered by Satan. Listen, never. <laughs> He's the Holy one. He's this eternal son of God, the spotless one, the righteous one, the lamb of God, the purest of pure, the lily of the valley. Amen. The light of the world, the bright and morning star, the right bright and morning star, all authority, all power, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ willing to forgive all kinds of sin. If your heart is burdened this morning, 
run to Jesus Christ, touch the hem of his garden, call, garment, call out to him, know that he died on the cross and rose it again to forgive you and to give you his life. He desires to draw you near. Right now, run to him in faith, believing that he is who he is. And he will wash you and make you clean. And he will give you his righteousness. Not only will he take away your sin, but he gives you his righteousness. That's amazing. He adopts you into his kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And that is by faith, by grace through faith in him. Amen. Not works. And so God is so good. We serve an awesome God, the awesome God with all authority and all power. Listen, you're on the winning team. Amen. 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 He loves you. Just want to repeat that. He loves you, you guys know that, right? Do you got, do you have some work to do? Yeah. <laughs> He's sanctifying us. Amen. Let's let him and trust him for our gap. How many of you guys have gaps in your character, gaps in your walk, gaps in your faith, gaps in who you should be and who you aren't? Who does, does he want you just to figure it out? What does he want you to do? Run to him. Run to him over and over and ask, and he will do what you cannot. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the kindness you've given us. in the precious form of your son who came down and became one of us and lived this way and demonstrated who you are, Father. And and when he was walking, Lord, your son said, have I been with you so long that you don't recognize me? I and the Father are one. To see you is to see the Father. And we see your heart here and your authority here and your love and your forgiveness and your power and your mercy and your compassion and yet your truth, just cutting like a sword. God, we just praise you for who you are. Thank you that you reached into our darkness and called us to your marvelous light. And now, Lord, empower us to walk after you wholeheartedly. Cleanse us of our sin and fill us, Lord, with righteousness and the hunger and thirst for righteousness and the things that you have before us. Lord, open our eyes to them that we may walk in them and glorify you in this life. And so all glory and honor to you, Lord. Bless you. Praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Lord bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Amen.